Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Over the back of the bathroom door really was this giant mirror cart mount. It was tilapia, and my wife was like, Please don't make a scene. All right, I'll go with the purple crust bug. Smart man. Maybe they only show up with three beers, but inevitably drink ten. Bent! Merry New Year! <laughs> yes, Merry New Year, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that's still on your couch at 1 p.m. on New Year's Day. And while you could tolerate us the night before when you had five Jaeger bombs in you, you really need us just to go the f- home now. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and, and I've been that guy. And I just got to say, I am so glad that we worked that reference into this show. Can I just tell you how happy that one makes me? Anyway, the way I see it, either no one is listening today, and, and hopefully everyone will catch up later, or it's possible that you're all just sitting around doing nothing on yep. New Year's Day, and so maybe you're tuning in. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for the latter, because... Um, well, I think we're all excited for 2020 to be over. Kind of goes Ugh. without saying. Uh, I got to tell you, I always have found New Year's Day to be really depressing. Like, even mm-hmm. in the era of when I partied hard the night before, I hated New Year's Day. And it was it's like the only day of the year when I was okay with just being in PJs and couch tripping all day. It's the only one. Yeah, I totally feel you on that, but maybe not for the same reason. So so give me a little more. Elaborate. Elaborate on your, your, your well, feelings here. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like the holidays are over. You know, you have to go back to work yeah. or back to school. And, and most of all, I think it's just that, like, now it's winter. And not festive Christmas lightsy winter. Like, now it's right. just cold, dark winter, you know? Yeah, the, the, the celebratory part of winter is over. Now it's yes. just waiting yes. for spring. <laughs> waiting, exactly. I, I, get, I get that. I get the New Year's Day hangover, both in the literal and the figurative sense. But New Year's Eve is the biggest holiday of the year where I grew up. Like, it, it blows the everything else out of the water really right lots of asian cultural influence in hawaii right so right, right, the right. shifting of the calendar is a really big deal forget about the fact that they celebrate technically a different new year's it doesn't matter it's all been <laughs> sort of melded into this americanized version of of new year's celebration it's great um 
before they changed the laws for very sound environmental reasons, like when I was a kid, people would hang firecracker strings from the streetlights that were so long, oh, they no almost way. touched the ground. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it was crazy. And and they you light them off at, at midnight to scare away evil spirits and bring prosperity for the, the new year, and everybody does it. And you'd wake up New Year's Day, and the leftover red paper from the actually the millions of spent firecrackers would be ankle deep. It would be like no red way. snow in the streets. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And like if the trade winds were calm on New Year's Eve, this thick fog of just pure smoke would hang in the air all night. And Sulfur. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> would wake up the next morning feeling like shit, whether they partied or not, just from the like the phosphorus and whatever other toxic shit was in that smoke. And yeah. then and then you if you add a crippling hangover on top of that, it was just like the worst thing ever. So I can I can relate to couching it all New Year's Day and just eating leftovers and watching college football because I definitely did plenty of that. Yeah. Well yeah, but that I mean that sounds like it used to be so much fun. Like like twenty something year old me would have been all about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Though nowadays it was fun. Yeah. Now I just run out in my bathrobe and slippers, light one mortar. <sighs> Go to bed, you know? <laughs> and on 4th of July, because I'm now a responsible homeowner, I'm the dude outside with the garden hose, you know, waiting for the roof to catch on fire, asking myself, like, who am I? What have I become? <laughs> you know? It's terrible. You're saying, like, the, the days of bottle rocket fights are over? You don't do that yeah, anymore? Yeah, now I'm like, let's make sure this is a clear space, look in all yeah. directions, rather than just, like, put one down a, a PVC tube and just close your eyes and aim. I'm going to light this Roman candle, and you better run. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But uh, I do, I do miss the the days of partying. You know, younger days, stumbling around your parents' house in the morning, just like looking for vomit, urine, or feces in closets, <laughs> laundry hampers, mine? just like opening <laughs> opening drawers before, like you know, just make sure. Yeah. And then uh, you know, you remember, it's like around eleven a.m. You're trying to talk yourself into just chugging one can of Budweiser. Like if you can just stomach that one can, you know, you'll feel better. Them oh, were the days. You- you were up by 11 back then? I don't, I don't <laughs> think I was up till 1. I, I, I'm with you, though, dude. I don't think I've seen Midnight on New Year's Eve in, in like half a decade, to be yep. honest. And that's amazing. I can't believe I'm saying this because I used to live for that. But I also remember absolutely loving red beers for, ah. I mean, we'll call it breakfast, but it was lunch to take <laughs> the edge off. And you know what? That's actually a perfect segue into, into That's My Bar. We're going to go there. Uh, the That's My Bar segment we've got for you this week where we feature a bar that someone wrote in to tell us about. This one highlights the debate that Joe and I have about red beers and some potentially exquisite, crispy, greasy fried food, which has been known to soak up the remaining spirits sloshing around in the old gut region. Oh, yeah. The Wendy's Baconator has saved me so many times, dude. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Today's That's My Bar comes to us from James Sukup. And I hope I said that right. I feel like I say that every time we read one of these. You guys got weird (laughs) last names. He lives in eastern Nebraska. And tell you the truth, we don't really get a lot of shout-outs from Nebraska, right? I mean, nothing against Nebraska, but fair to say it's not the first state that comes to mind for many when you think fishy states. Agree with that? My oldest and closest fishing buddy is a Nebraskan, but that's uh-huh. kind of the only connection I have to it. If I th- <laughs> like, I'm, I'm racking my brain, and I know there's good fishing there, but yeah, that's all I can think so, of. So I've I've only ever fished there once, and that was at Lake McConaughey, Big Mac, which is I think arguably Nebraska's most famous lake for walleyes. And while the people were awesome, made some great friends, beautiful lake, the fishing was not good when I was there. And then mm. um, my motel almost got hit by a tornado. So. <laughs> 
So you haven't been back? No, I you know I haven't because it was the whole like you know golf ball hail and the sirens thing. It wigged me out. Like it was real deal. Yeah. Um, anyway, look, I got the Italian last name right, but there, there's a lot of Czech and Polish blood coursing through these Cermelli veins. So I like James's nomination even more. Okay, because of that, and he writes, "I grew up in Nebraska. It isn't the fishiest state in the union, but there are some decent holes out there. Regardless of the fishing opportunities." I nominate Czechland Inn in Prague, Nebraska, which I'm, I'm betting there's a lot of Czechoslovakians in Prague, Nebraska, would be my guess. I, I hope so. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. He says, all walks of life are welcome here, from your cow farmer to your bean farmer. And I got to say, James, <laughs> are those the only walks of life? Because that doesn't really cover that wide of a swath. You know what <laughs> I mean? I like you know, it, but you can farm whatever you want. <laughs> exactly. All farmers welcome here. <laughs> so James continues. This is the type of place where you wear your work jeans in for lunch and then switch to your new Wranglers for the Friday night fish fry. What mm -hmm. type of fish do they fry? Carp. Of course. Would you like two pieces or three pieces? Aside from the excellent cuisine, it is the only place I have ever been to with a decent carp mount on the wall. That's saying something, because you don't see many of them, and they're usually pretty rough, okay? So I've got I've got something on that, but I'll let you finish, and then I'll <laughs> okay. get back to okay. it. Okay, okay. He says, while they can get well over 40 pounds in Nebraska, they have dedicated wall space to a 15-pound fish. So if you find yourself in eastern Nebraska and are wore out from farm pond hopping all day for bluegill and crappie, Head over to the Checkland Inn for a cold red beer. He says that's tomato juice and beer, and I got something on that. Some fried carp and possibly live polka music, if you are lucky. And a couple of things, man. So first, I love the sound of the place, right? And while so you I'm and sold. I, I'm yeah, totally sold. Right? So you and I have talked on this show about eating Asian carp. I actually ate it at your house, and it was very yeah. good. Of course, James is talking common carp. And I have only ever seen this on TV, you know, these places where they score the fish and, like, mm -hmm. deep fry the hell out of them. And even though the idea of eating common carp wigs me out a bit, I've always wanted to try it in a place like this that, like, that's their thing. And, like, they, yep. they do it right. So I, I'd be down just for that. And then polka music, I'm in. I mean, I grew up listening to Jan Levon and the Polka Kings because my grandmother, like, blared that shit like it was anthrax. You know what I mean? <laughs> the Pennsylvania polka, like little me over at her house, you know? Um, and, uh, just and, you know, think of planes, <laughs> trains, and automobiles. That's all yes, I can think of right yes, now. Yes, yes, yes. And dude, just the whole Eastern Euro thing. Like, even though we're talking Czech and Polish right now, like I love a good German beer house, even if it's, if it's the fake tourist oh, trap yeah. one, like in Vegas. You know, the groups always like, you guys want to go to Nobu, and I'm like, nah, let's go to that Hofbrau joint with the leader hosing and the ass paddling. Like, that's a good time. You know, um, you know, you're gonna have fun there. And if yeah. you spend as much there as you do at Nobu. <laughs> You'll be real hungover the next day. Exactly. So I also know for a fact that that the Poles and the Czechs are super fun to drink with. This is my family. And finally, the red beer really hit me. And that was the thing with my great aunts and uncles, right? And I love that. And it's so weird because I, I'm a Bloody Mary connoisseur. I cannot get enough, right? But the tomato juice in beer, I know that's kind of a, a European slash Midwestern thing. I mean, you spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. I've tried it. For some reason, I don't like it. But if I'm not mistaken, which is fitting on New Year's Day, that's also a big hangover cure, is it not? Oh, yeah. And I love a red beer. I'm I'm more in on the chelada side of things. Yeah. Like the Mexican version. I love a good chelada, but I'll take a straight red beer any day. I have no problem with that. Yeah. I um, don't know. I love the idea. I don't know why I can't get into it, though. We'll, we'll work on that. 
Bloodies are good. I'm more of a Caesar guy. I actually once did a, a tour of little dive bars in Montana looking for the best Caesar in the state, and I do think I found it. But I want to get back to the carp thing because I love carp fishing. Mm-hmm, and me too. Nebraska has great carp fishing, I know. And just real quick, side note, I used to work for, uh, I, I got it for a fly shop out here called The River's Edge. Uh-huh. And, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd meet your day and it's like all trouty and, and high class and blah, 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 blah. Over the back of of the bathroom door really was this giant mirror carp mount and a beautiful nice. one. And nice. I always loved that because it was like such a trout snobby place. Yep. But then they had the big ass, really nice mirror carp mount, and it just it just it hit the vibe right. It was a great shop to work for. So shout yeah. out to those guys. Yeah, and dude, and as many people know, like I I kind of sort of collect vintage skin mounts, and I'd love to have a carp. I've only ever seen one, and it was like literally disintegrating. So, but if I ever saw a good one, oh, I would I would proudly buy that. So anyway, this place, man, James, thank you for the nomination. Uh, we'll get some some bent stickers headed your way. Uh, I'd love to see that fifteen pound carp mount and dance a polka with someone. I, I do have to say, though, while you sold the bar beautifully, you didn't really sell Nebraska as a fishy state, so it may take us a bit to get there. Yeah. But um, we'll let you know if we're heading out that way. And don't forget, if you have a bar you want to nominate for this segment, send it to us at bent at com. So in case you're, you're sitting around all mopey today, like Joe, <laughs> and you just cannot stand to force yourself to watch another season of Survivor on Netflix, maybe, just maybe... You should pick up a book. Uh, How about that? Uh, I just I just caught a waft of mahogany and whiskey, which means I, I <laughs> smell some Hemingway coming on. And mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm right, I've been waiting for this because ever since I made fun of Hemingway a few episodes ago, and you didn't have the time to thrash me, like I've been I've been waiting for this. But no matter mm-hmm. where we're going here, I'd like to remind you I was not making fun of Ernest Hemingway, just people who are overly obsessed with Hemingway. And I was not going all Hemingway cult obsessive, <laughs> just to also clear that up. I can I can name several outdoor writers who I'd prefer to read and who were less terrible humans <laughs> than Hemingway was. But just because you teed me up for it a couple weeks, I'm going to suggest a Hemingway book for all of you in this week's Freaking Philistines, which is the segment where we encourage all of you to put down your screens for a minute and actually read a good book. And I'm going to guess that this probably isn't the Hemingway book that any of you expected. What's a Faustin? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. The Lang Faustin. Since Joe brought up the subject of Hemingway a few episodes ago, I decided we should dive a little deeper into one of Papa's works. If you're at all familiar with Hemingway, you're probably expecting me to talk about Old Man in the Sea. That's Hemingway's Pulitzer Prize winning story of Santiago an aging Cuban fisherman who sets out in a diminutive skiff, attempts to land a massive marlin on handline, and may, or may not, be an allegory for Christ. But no, I'm not going to be that obvious. Besides, some teacher probably already forced that one on you at some point. The next clear choice would be Big Two-Hearted River, in which Hemingway's recurrent and somewhat autobiographical character, Nick Adams, freshly home from the First World War, attempts to soothe his many wounds, both physical and psychological by escaping into the northern Michigan woods and waters, spending a couple days camping and trout fishing. But I'm not going to do that one either. Instead, I'm going to scratch the surface of a less famous work by the great writer, but my personal favorite, Islands in the Stream. No, not that. All due respect to Dolly and Kenny, but that song has absolutely nothing to do with the book of the same name. 
I'll start by admitting that Islands in the Stream is not a fishing book, but features a couple truly fantastic fishing scenes. And one, the novel's protagonist, Thomas Hudson, is trolling for billfish with his sons, David, Andrew, and Tom Jr., his cook, Eddie, and his close friend, Roger. Here's a taste. Thomas Hudson saw a huge boil in the water but could not see the fish. David had the rod butt in the gimbal and was looking up at the clothespin on the outrigger line. Thomas Hudson saw the line fall from the outrigger in a long, slow loop that tightened as it hit the water and now was racing out at a slant, slicing the water as it went. Hit him, Dave. Hit him hard, Eddie called from the companionway. Hit him, Dave. For God's sake, hit him, Andrew begged. Shut up, David said. I'm handling him. He hadn't struck yet, and the line was steadily going out at that angle. The rod bowed, the boy holding back on it as the line moved out. Thomas Hudson had throttled the motors down so they were barely turning over. Oh, for God's sake, hit him, Andrew pleaded, or let me hit him. David just held back on the rod and watched the line moving out at the same steady angle. He had loosened the drag. He's a broadbill, Papa, he said without looking up. I saw his sword when he took it. I think you ought to hit him now. Roger was standing with the boy now. He had the back out of the chair, and he was buckling the harness on the reel. Hit him now, Dave, and really hit him. Do you think he's had it long enough? David asked. You don't think he's just carrying it in his mouth and swimming with it? I think you'd better hit him before he spits it out. David braced his feet, tightened the drag well down with his right hand, and struck back hard against the great weight. He struck again and again, bending the rod like a bow. The line moved out steadily. He had made no impression on the fish. Hit him again, Dave, Roger said. Really put it into him. David struck again with all his strength and the line started zizzing out. The rod bent so that he could hardly hold it. Oh, God, he said devoutly. I think I've got it into him. Ease up on your drag, Roger told him. Turn with him, Tom, and watch the line. Turn with him and watch the line, Thomas Hudson repeated. You all right, Dave? I'm wonderful, Papa, Dave said. Oh, God, if I can catch this fish. David's fight with that giant swordfish goes on for more than 30 pages, all of it traced out in the sparse but potent prose that made Hemingway famous, or that Hemingway made famous, depending on your perspective. It really is one of the best fish fight scenes ever written, and I'm not going to tell you any more about it, because you should damn well read it for yourself. But the other 400 pages of the book are also worth your time. Islands in the Stream is one of those stories that I keep coming back to, rereading at different intervals of my life. And every time I read it, I find fresh insight. Not because the book has changed, but because I have. And each time I bring a new version of myself to the story, I uncover a different aspect that I couldn't hear until I had the necessary experience to decode it. The basic plot follows Thomas Hudson, a successful painter, through three distinct snapshots of his life. The first, where all the fishing happens, takes place on Bimini Island in the Bahamas. There we find Thomas in a steady but tenuous rhythm of days, working diligently, raising his sons to be strong men, and trying to protect his friend Roger, a novelist, from self-destructive impulses. The second takes place in Cuba, where we find Thomas a different and perhaps diminished man, beaten down by his own ego, poor choices, and other unfortunate events. The third happens almost entirely at sea, as Thomas tries to chase down a group of German soldiers who captured a local turtle boat after their U-boat was destroyed. Through it all, the only real constant is the stoic inner turmoil of a man who feels too much, expresses too little, and consumes copious quantities of hard liquor. 
Islands in the Stream was published in 1970, almost two decades after Hemingway died. His children and publisher cobbled the manuscript together from bits and pieces they found in a safe in Havana after his suicide. But you probably wouldn't guess that if you didn't already know. I don't notice the scenes where the different parts have been stitched together. The book feels cohesive, or at least as cohesive as any Hemingway work ever does. Hemingway's other posthumous books, in my opinion, should have been buried with him, but this one is the exception. Even if you hated every single minute of English class, I think you'll find something to love in this book. Beyond the great fishing scenes, there are some solid bar fights, some very impressive feats of drinking, and some of the finest descriptions of the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf Stream ever penned. As soon as I uh, finish renewing all my fishing licenses online today, which is a New Year's Day tradition of mine, I'm, I'm going to order that book on tape. Oh, that. that's bullshit. <laughs> that is bullshit. All right. Look, come on, dude. I don't have it. I have no beef with audiobooks, but Hemingway, this, it's not, we're not talking about Carl Hyacin. Like that one you can listen to an audiobook, but like half the point of Hemingway is appreciating and rereading particular sentences. Do not be that guy. <laughs> you, like, don't do it. Look at you getting all fired up. Yeah. Miles, you fire him up over some literature. I'm just busting your chops, dude. Settle down. Channel that aggression into current events because it's time for you and I to actually battle it out in fish news. Fish news. That escalated quickly. For my housekeeping this week, I want to do a quick follow-up on a story that Joe covered, uh, uh, I don't know, what, like a month ago? I don't, it, all, covering, it all blends together. I don't remember anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But but you were, you were talking about issues with California and other states announcing trout stocking schedules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then this week, I, I literally came across this news article in a, in a California newspaper. It was titled, This is How to Find Out Where, When, CDFW Stocks California Waters with fish. <laughs> and then that article <laughs> that article went on to to state that catchable size planted trout quote are planted to be caught more or less immediately by anglers. And then and then further on it explained that fingerling plants, so the smaller not catchable size ones, fingerling plants in high mountain streams are not announced on the fish planting schedule and that those fish quote aren't planted to be caught immediately. Rather, the intention is that they grow and acclimate for a season or two and become much like wild fish by the time an angler encounters them. So you guys were our, like the the issue there was that all the fish were being caught right away and none of them were recreating the the experience yeah. of like a fake wild fish. Yeah. But California seems to be saying they're doing both. So I just want to throw that out there and, and see what you thought. Well, I mean, I think in the lake setting, first of all, I do not disagree with the statement that any planted trout are are planted to be caught more or less immediately by like immediately is a strong word. You know what I yeah. mean? Like the whole point out here was to supplement these streams for an entire spring season. You know what I mean? So there'd be trout fishing out here. Um, so that's weird. But again, I'm not that into the, the the stalker lake culture. But then what they're talking about with the high mountain stuff, well. Yeah, like that's, of course, why would you announce that? I mean, it sounds to me like those fish actually have the uh, ability to be around for a very long time if if you let them. So, you know, where I fish, can't really do that. I mean, you could put them in right. there and not tell anybody. They're not going to make it past July 1 anyway. So there's like a happy medium in there somewhere, I think, right? if that makes sense. But um, Yeah, I, I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd bring that up because it was a new wrinkle to the story. I found it interesting. Anyway. I like it. 
I like it. Tru- a lot of people have been saying that uh, they've now adopted truck trout because they've heard me say that. I thought that was a common term. I thought everybody knew what truck trout meant, but. I've heard that term before. I okay. definitely have. I, I would not have been confused by that term. It makes <laughs> me think of ambulance chaser. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go in a way different direction. Yeah. So I, I got a uh, little bit of, of housekeeping here before we get to the news. Um, reminder, though, while we're on it, it is 2021 now. And I think Yay. that's, we could not possibly bring you better news. We could we could probably quit right there with news because that's, that's the best news we're, we're going to get. Um, I do have to uh, shout out listener Ethan Barker, though, a few weeks ago. I did a news story on Odd Baits and asked you guys to shoot us a note about the weirdest bait you've ever put on a hook. And Ethan sent us a novella, okay? Key takeaways, his favorite snack is carrots and hummus. At one point in his life, he'd eat an entire bag of carrots and tub of hummus daily, and during a particularly uh, rock'em, sock'em, tailwater trout float, one winter in his home state of Wyoming, he writes, uh, I used my goofy buck teeth to nibble a carrot in a, uh, about a six millimeter ball, is what he says. Which is, which is pretty brilliant <laughs> if he's on the stream that I, I, I'm pretty sure he's on. But Ethan go, goes on to say, as soon as the rig got to depth, the pink bobber hesitated and with a brisk upward strike of a six weight, we had on a very large rainbow. As we lifted the fish for a quick grip and grin, the rainbow was stricken by seasickness <laughs> and vomited up a charcuterie selection of scuds, mayflies, a sculpin, and yes, one chunk of Kroger organic baby carrot. There it is. Organic. That's what got him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. And, yes. and uh, he concludes his note by saying, do not feel obligated to share the story, but if you do, don't tell people it was Wyoming. I'll get shot. <laughs> Oops. Whoops. You kind of gave us no choice, though, Ethan. Like, you kind of set us up for that. Um, hopefully, we didn't just make your 2021 kick off with misery. You know what I mean? Everyone's looking for a vaccine. Ethan's looking for body armor. Anyway, uh, let's get on with the news now. Remember, this is a competition. Miles and I don't know which story the other dude uh, wrangled up. And at the end of this, our audio engineer and general man about town, Phil We'll have to pull himself away from the new PS5. I hope he got for Christmas because I know he I wanted hope he one. Got it. Yeah. To declare the first news winner of the year, and it is your turn to lead off today, sir. All right. Well, uh, right or wrong, could be a poor decision on my part, but I'm going to stick with the, the 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 questionable New Year's resolution theme that ah. we touched on earlier, and I'm, I'm going to try and keep this going throughout the whole news segment. It's going to be a stretch, but uh, we'll see if I can pull it off. So this first story covers a New Year's resolution that I should probably consider adopting, and that would be to act more like an octopus, at least in some ways. Okay. It turns out that like you and me, octopuses have fishing buddies, but perhaps unlike you and me, they don't put up with any shit from those partners. Okay. Right? We all have certain fishing buddies who just don't contribute to the mission. Or show up on time, or well, bring, yeah, exactly. Maybe, or bring maybe, the lunch they were supposed to bring. Maybe they're yeah. always late. Yes. Maybe they never have the right gear. Maybe <laughs> they only show up with three beers, but inevitably drink ten. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> they conveniently have to leave just as soon as you start cleaning up. Or maybe you've been floating rivers together for more than a decade now, and they still haven't learned how to row a damn boat. Mm-hmm. You know who you are. Mm-hmm. You do. Now, to be clear contributions come in many forms. I have great fishing friends who never have the right gear or enough of it, but they always fill the cooler and pay for gas. I have other friends who are dead broke and couldn't catch a fish in a hatchery pond, but they're so damn entertaining that I'll fish with them anytime just for the quality of the company. Like doesn't matter. Yep. My point 
is that a good fishing buddy has to contribute in some way. Sometimes, though, you realize you've been fishing with someone for years, and they're not adding anything to your fishing days. And that's the point where you should channel your inner octopus. Okay? Mm -hmm. Scientists have known since the 80s that octopuses will team up with various different types of fishes to form hunting parties. So the, the, they'll get together and they'll target a section of reef and work in tandem to flush out all the prey hiding there. So the goatfish and other bottom feeders will surround and guard the seafloor perimeter. The, the semi-benthic predators like groupers will be patrolling the water column above the reef. And then the octopuses will get in there and they'll dig through the coral itself, flushing out prey from the holes and the crevices and the other spots they can hide. And each of these animals has a role to play. And if one of them doesn't do their job right, they all suffer. A recently published study shows that octopuses are the ringleaders of these operations, which isn't surprising given their superior intellect compared with fish. It also shows that octopus don't tolerate lazy or greedy partners. The paper states, <laughs> quote, Conflicts between partners can arise over the level of investment or distribution of payoffs. Thus, in this complex social network of interactions, partner control mechanisms might emerge in order to prevent exploitation and ensure collaboration. And partner control mechanisms might now be my favorite euphemism for punching someone in the face, because that's exactly <laughs> what the researchers observed the octopus is doing. If a certain fish didn't do its job right, or maybe decided to hang back and pick off the flush prey instead of actively working to patrol its area, the ringleader octopus would seek it out and punch it in the face with a tentacle. The paper goes on. Here we report a series of events where different octopus individuals engage in active displacement of partner fish during collaborative hunting. To this end, the octopus performs a swift, explosive motion with one arm directed at the specific fish partner, which we refer to as punching. <laughs> one of the authors of the study, Edward Sampaio, wrote on Twitter, quote, this was probably the most fun I had writing a paper ever. And... If you read it, that's that's pretty clear from the paper. It's one of those rare fisheries papers that a layperson can actually read and understand. Plus, it's only eight pages long. But for those of you who are like, eight pages? Come on. I could watch like 50 TikTok videos in time to read, some, <laughs> read eight pages. Don't worry. You can see clips of the octopus pugilists online, and I will say that that's also highly entertaining. So while I do not recommend punching any of your fishing buddies in the face, the next time they eat all your jerky or maybe steal the last drunk and disorderly you have that actually swims right and then pitch it into the trees on the first cast, you might come up with other less violent partner control mechanisms. I, I just have to jump right in and say that you, you had said sometimes we have those fishing partners we fish with for years before finally understanding that like we shouldn't be fishing with them. And they're yeah. I, I don't do that. My, my partner control mechanism is like, I just don't answer your DMs anymore. <laughs> and that's the way to do it. I'm, I'm not advocating for the face punching. Um, I have had a, a, a habit in the past of just like continuing to fish with people who I should have stopped fishing with years ago. And I'm trying to get better at that. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of like sort of similar stories now a couple weeks in a row with like this symbiotic relationship thing. You're really into that lately. I, you know, I get on these kicks, man. I don't know. I know some they, they, certain things. That story just jumped out at me because I saw a video of an octopus punching a fish in the face, and I was like, "All right, I gotta, I gotta talk about that." So to understand this right, it all works in harmony, and like the the octopus kicked the stuff out to the other fish, sort of in the system, right, in different places. 
theoretically, if everybody's doing their job, they're all getting food kicked to them, right? Because the, the octopus are going to be pushing shrimp and, and small fish and stuff, and then they're going to run into the goat fish, and they're going to go back to the octopus. Right. Right. And, and this and works every, all the way up to the grouper. You were saying like exactly. the grouper. Yep. And they're huh. all working together. So like the goat fish and the grouper and the octopuses are all working collaboratively to get all the food out of a little chunk of coral. Well, that's fascinating. I, I expect a uh, apology from, from whoever put Finding Nemo together because that's not it was not all <laughs> harmony. That's not the way that's not the way that it worked. Um, Everything else in that was so accurate. But, so. <laughs> but, but that's that's like a great mile science drop right there. It was. It was, yeah. I like that. So uh, whether you're a person that wants to catch more fish or an octopus or you have the guy that doesn't pull his weight, maybe maybe what he needs is uh, the the subject of, of my first story here, which is going to go completely off of science to tabloid journalism. So it is a new year. So how about a forecast about what could be the hottest lure of 2021? Mm. All right. Uh, if Shark Tank shark Kevin O'Leary has his way, you'll all be investing in the animated lore this year and making him even richer. Uh, in the latest <laughs> round of Shark Tank investors throwing money at hokey fishing garbage, O'Leary threw 325,000 clams, right, at the animated lure company. And if you're unfamiliar with this, and I doubt many of you are, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a jointed hard bait you cast out under a bobber. And thanks to its little internal motor and propeller on its nose, it swims in circles below the float, darting and rolling and pausing, just like a real live struggling bait fish. Now, have you seen this at ICAST? Do you remember seeing this at ICAST? I do. I, I remember being very judgmental of it. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I was going to say, like, not to be the dick, but but that was like one of those walk-by shaking my head booths. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there, there used to be a few at every one of the industry shows. And, I, and this was a few years ago when I first saw them there. And at the time, um, as I recall, they were, they were pretty limited, like in size and pattern. Like they, they just kind of dropped this on the world. Well, fast forward to today, and the animated lore has six different sizes and loads and loads of colors, some of which they classify as classic colors, some premium colors. The priciest models, those being the premium saltwater, will set you back 90 bucks a bait, um, and if you just want to get into this anime game, just sort of wet the whistle, the classic mini will cost you 30 bucks. So there's your price ranges, right? Still, still cheaper than a, than a horse skin swim bait. That, that is true. That is true. I'll give you that much. And I, I will admit, man, like at least in the videos on the animated lore site, the, the things look pretty damn good. They look they look pretty realistic. They don't just sort of swim in a circle they they change direction and they, they look good however um if you watch some some youtube reviews some you know by other people not associated with the company there you will hear some naysayers say either they didn't swim correctly or if you bend that tiny little plastic propeller ever so slightly they're just done uh, and as a man who's been given several mini helicopters as stocking stuffers over the years, I can attest to the fragility of those little propellers. Like, I've never had one last more than Christmas Day. You know what I mean? No. Love the idea of it, but they just don't last. Um, but I want to do, like, a psychological evaluation on the people who are all about these. Because it's like even the Alabama rig zealots are like, I, I can't. I just couldn't. <laughs> couldn't go there, you know? Um, and for, <laughs> for the record, I'm certainly not saying it won't get eight if it's swimming properly. Because there, there's plenty of video of the animated lore sticking giant bass granite mostly in what looked like 
gated mm-hmm. community ponds, but mm-hmm. still it is it is what it is. But I, I just find this fascinating because to me, this isn't really a lore per se. You agree with that? Because you don't work it, right? It, no. It's, it's fake live bait is yeah. what it is. That's exactly what uh, it is. But it's also fake live bait that's far, far more expensive than a bucket of real live bait. And I suppose one could argue that it's it's more convenient than live bait, barring that whole pesky USB charging time. And apparently some run 45 minutes, others can run for two hours. But you have one of them, right? Unless yeah. like, you just buy crazy amounts. But let's assume you buy one. It's like one pickroll, and that's done. Like if you let that premium saltwater big eye scad model swim around over a Florida Keys reef for five minutes, it's done. Like a CUDA will make that go bye-bye real fast. Yet the animated lore looks so realistic that it worries me slightly. And hear me out because I look at like the Mighty Bite fish caller. And and when that first came out, I I wasn't saying to myself like, gee, in 30 years, every boat will come standard with one of those. You know what I mean? But the- Definitely not. Yeah, right. But the animated lore, I'm not sure. So I just question, especially with this investment, right? Is it destined to fade away like the others? And in some cases, what I would say were, were better- quote, gimmicks than this, like the flying lore. We love to make fun of those. But if you break it down, that was actually a really smart design that I always thought if it hadn't been an as-seen-on-TV deal, it could have had stay power, right? I've caught a ton of Mm -hmm. fish on those. Or is this like the first step towards where fishing tackle in general is going? Like the first step towards creating the Terminator technology that will ultimately destroy us? Because if I mean, dude, you've got reels with computer chips in them now. So every time one of these things pop up, I start questioning: like, is this the step? You know, because this one's getting yeah. a lot of hype, a lot of money, and a lot of hype behind this. One. I don't think this is the one. No, I don't think this is. I, I might eat my words on this in in five or ten years, and and it will all be out there for people to to judge me on. But I don't think this is the one that pushes us over the edge into like full on robot fishing forever. Okay. I just don't think we're there yet. That's fair. But, and and, and we're not going to spend too much time on it because we could do a whole show on it. But in the shortest version, do you ever think that we are, are headed there? Yeah. I I remember seeing a story years ago that like talked about the future. I forget what magazine it was in. And basically they had like a dude dressed up like a power ranger with a thing on his wrist that would like, (laughs) you know, just talk to the lure. You just control it with where your arm moved. And then, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, do you think that we it, it, that can happen? I don't think it's going to get there. I think people like the the experience of feeling a fish through a rod and line is never going to go away. Like that 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 is what people desire. That is a big part of the draw of fishing. I don't think that goes away, but I do think that we are going to continue to get more and more mechanized around that basic set of tools. Okay, and do you have a, a particular piece of like a prediction on a particular piece of gear that you see getting all teched out? Because I don't. I don't have one in the pipeline here. I'm just like spouting I, off right I, now. I, I think probably like the reels for sure. And I think eventually we're going to have the the camera technology is going to get better and better to the point where you're casting the camera and you're seeing things and it does, it's not going to suck the way it does now. I think that's where it's going to go over the top eventually. Oh, yeah. You just reminded me. I'm still waiting on my media sample of that that lure with the camera in it that's at iCast yeah. every year, but they're like, oh, yeah. no, 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 still prototype. I'm like, when? <laughs> when when do I see it? I want to see the King Mackerel snip the thing off in real time. Anyway. And so, and when that happens, I'll, I'll be watching your 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 channels, your Instagram, just to, to, to <laughs> laugh at you. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Believe it or not, dude, I also dug into the tabloids this week for my second story. Good, good, good. We were playing in the same pool. Good. Um, but again, I'm sticking with the, the resolution theme. Mm-hmm. And it feels like every year around now, we hear about famous people resolving to eat healthier. And we have to hear all the details of what they're going to do as if we care, right? Whether it's uh-huh. Atkins or keto or paleo or I don't know. I don't know. I don't keep up with any of that. But one of the dietary resolutions that famous or semi-famous people have been announcing for a while is to eat less animal protein and more fish protein. Well, I came across a story on the website... Page six, which in case you don't know, is a trashy online British tabloid uh, that may have has been stars thinking twice about that resolution this year. Okay. The first line of the story goes, Victoria Beckham is keeping it real, R-E-E-L, after tests found a dangerously high level of toxic mercury in her system. There's so much wrong with that sentence. Not like, sporty spice. I could spice. spend. No, that's not sporty spice, isn't it? That would be posh spice. But anyway, 
Beyond the terrible <laughs> You're right. pun. He's right. You're right. Yeah. Beyond the terrible pun, which doesn't even actually make sense, there's like that scare tactic use of the word toxic. Like non-toxic mercury does not exist in the human body. You don't need to say toxic. <laughs> anyway, Victoria Beckham, <laughs> aka Posh Spice of the Spice Girls and wife of soccer star David Beckham, was apparently treating herself to a lavish health spa treatment in Germany when uh, they found levels of mercury in her blood that were, quote, off the scale. Turns out that for years, she's been living on a diet that consists primarily of tuna and swordfish, both known vectors for mercury contamination. But don't worry, that same spa performed a liver cleanse, and she now <laughs> feels, quote, brilliant and lean and fit as ever. <sighs> Thank oh God. Oh, my God. Well, that's, uh, I what was kind concerned. of spa is drawing blood? What spa are you going to? <laughs> a really expensive one. But wait, there's more. Strangely, in the same week... Another British 90s pop star, Robbie Williams of the half a hit wonder band, take that, announced no idea. <laughs> exactly no idea announced that he had recently nearly died from, you may see where I'm going here, mercury poisoning because of his all fish diet. Apparently, he, could, he could only afford the tilapia, though. He's not posh. <laughs> oh, no, dude, married like, if, you, if you look this guy up, he's he's huge in, in the Britain, just didn't make it across the pond. Okay. Apparently, Robbie has been eating expensive and uh, high in the food chain fish two to three times a day for decades. Good news for all of us, though. Unless you're an insanely wealthy former rock star, you can't afford no. tuna and swordfish multiple times a month, much less daily. But I got more because this was a big week for mercury news, even beyond the British tabloids. First, a commission here in my home state of Montana just came out with a revised warning about the Clark Fork River, advising people against eating any fish from that system due to elevated levels of mercury and other toxins. So heads up to my people out in Missoula. And last but certainly not least, a recent study found mercury levels in the deepest parts of the ocean, the Abyssal and Hadopelagic zones, are starting to increase. They hypothesize this is coming from mercury-laden fish near the surface. When those fish die, their remains sink. And some of those remains make it all the way to the abyss in the form of slowly sinking detritus, known as marine snow. Mercury, that was once in the stratosphere, is now reaching the deepest depths of the oceans, thanks to pelagic fish that are the primary vehicle for that transmission. Okay, it was just a crazy week for mercury headlines, and I, I wanted to cover off on all those. But despite all of that, I think I got to reiterate that fish aren't bad for you. No. So long as you're smart about what you eat and in what quantities, don't stack your freezer with high mercury fish like rays and tuna and billfish and sharks and barramundi and orange ruffy or whatever they're calling it now. And definitely don't go on an all pelagic fish diet. Check with your state fish and game commission about consumption advisories for the places you like to catch and eat fish. If you follow those simple guidelines, you will be fine and you will not have to go to a German health spa to get your blood drawn and your liver cleansed. Like a uh, good old posh spice there. Yeah. This is why scientists invented tilapia. <laughs> for this very reason. So that our 90s pop stars would not end up in this kind of peril. <laughs> oh, I can't go with you on tilapia. There man. was no they're, tilapia they're in so 1995. Gross. They that are is not never, true. I, that oh, is not true. I know. I know. I'm kidding. I, you know, there's, is it, is it awful for a part of me to be like, good, I'm glad that happened because nobody, like, even no, if I had that much that tuna and swordfish, A, I would get sick of eating it every night. I mean, that's just like you can't eat filet mignon every night or lobster every night, right? Now, you and I wouldn't know if we could or couldn't because we never will. But, but like, 
a piece of swordfish or tuna is such a, a, a treat that yeah. just to think of it like canned tuna or just something so mundane that you would just eat it every day. Two or three like, times I'm kinda, a day. I'm like, good. I'm glad. Stop eating that. Like, you know, it, I, 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 I can't even imagine. Um, quick tilapia. <laughs> like, I, I just have to, I know this is not about the mercury, but I once ordered a seafood bouillon base at a Jersey Shore restaurant. Like we were sitting on the deck on the bay. Like I could smell the salt. And they said the fish of the day was in the bouillon base. And I did not question it. I said, chef's choice. We're at a seafood restaurant. And it was, it was f- tilapia. And my wife was like, please don't make a scene. Like that's how <laughs> upset I was. She was like, can I just enjoy my meal? Please don't make a scene. Anyway, tilapia. You can eat all that you want. Eat all the tilapia. Posh Bice and uh, <laughs> please, Robbie, because I don't Rob, want them. I think they're gross. <laughs> Robbie, whoever. Um, you also have to say, how amazing is that? Like to have mercury levels that how much of that shit do you have to eat for it to actually get to the point where it's like, damn, your mercury is all out of whack. Like, like you're that's off insane. the charts. Yeah, you're that's eating insane. a lot of tuna and swordfish. That is nuts. Okay. All right. Uh, how am I going to do this? I will go from. Rich people eating too much offshore fish to people who weren't rich getting getting kind of rich off of flea market finds. Kind of, sort of. Is that weird? That was an awful transition. That was a terrible transition, but real, I'm curious to see where you're going to go. Real bad. Um, we'll file this in the, in the 2021 financial department news, too. This is from MLive.com. You're going to like this, though. Headline, fish decoy carved by Michigan artist in 1940 sells for record price at auction. And since you know I'm a vintage tackle geek, this is like right up my alley. Perfect Um, for you. Now, in case you don't know what fish decoys are, some of you out there, this is a carved fish uh, painted and used in pike spearing, which is still a very big deal in the Midwest and upper Midwest. Instead of drilling a small hole, Miles, you've done this, right? So I have. Correct I have. me if I, if I have it wrong. You carve out a giant rectangle, and you're usually in pretty shallow water, and you do this in a shanty so it's nice and dark so you can see down into the water. And you send these decoys down on lines, and they, they attract pike. They come over for a look-see, and then you just drill them in the head with a pitchfork is basically how it works. Um, and I've, I've never done it. I've always wanted to try it. It looks, it looks like a ton of fun. But while there are um, modern commercially made decoys, the, they were traditionally hand-carved. And if I'm not mistaken, right, uh, the shape, the fin structure, it can vary to sort of change the action. Like some will spiral down when you let them go down in a circle. Some will glide away and dart away. And there's a lot of art and craft that goes into them. But they've also become folk art. People who never intend to use them buy them as decorations. I think, like, I think Pier 1 was selling them for a time. Anyway, from the story here, uh, a fish decoy crafted by a Michigan artist sold for a world record price this week. Created by noted carver and folk artist Oscar Peterson of Cadillac, the 15-inch long pike with glass eyes sold for $42,500. A world record. Wow. Yeah, man. Yeah. A world record for a fish decoy at auction. According to the auction firm Guyette and Dieter Inc., the decoy was made around 1940 and is in pristine condition. Listen to this. A total of 24 fish decoys were offered in the sale with a cumulative estimate of $55,000 to $82,000. However, they exceeded expectations by achieving a total of $118,500 for the lot. 
What? So more than doubled the more expected than, going more price? More than doubled. So I had to do a little digging, right? Because I was so curious. So I did a little digging on Oscar Peterson and found some info actually on the website of Antiques Roadshow, which I'll admit I'm a <laughs> fan of. I love it. I get sucked in when there's a marathon on. I like it. Okay. Um, it's good with like wearing slippers and drinking a warm drink, watching my stories. Um, I, <laughs> so I actually found the transcript from, from an episode featuring some other Peterson decoys. And I learned that the father of the gent who brought these in for appraisal got them from Oscar Peterson and they were well used. His dad was a farmer. He ice fished all winter in Michigan. And when he passed away, his son kept right on using them, but they were, um, all still in pretty good shape. And to be clear, I don't think the ones on Antique Roadshow are the same ones in the auction, right? But this is just useful backstory on who Peterson was. And according to the appraiser, Peterson made loads and loads of decoys and would sell just as many, if not more, to tourists than actual mm -hmm. ice fishermen. So there you go, right? They have souvenir appeal. The appraiser also said, and this is a quote, the thing that's cool about his stuff is that he did make a lot of them, but he didn't lose that enthusiasm for the way that he carved them or the way that he decorated them. And I always look for the way he turned the mouth. And the one thing you really got to watch out for these days is there's a lot of reproductions and out-and-out -out fakes. So um, even in slightly beat-up condition on Antiques Roadshow, they, the ones this guy had, some appraised for $3,500 a pop. And that was a few years ago. So there's a nearly $120,000 jackpot on ice decoys for someone out there. And I got to tell you, like I said, I collect vintage gear. And even out here on the East Coast, I see I see spearing decoys frequently. But I, I never buy them because they don't speak to me, right, as they say. Like pike spearing, ice fishing in general, they're just not part of the culture here. Like I, I, I buy the shit out of vintage striper lures every chance I get. But I always pass these up. And this has got me thinking, right? However, <laughs> what this story ultimately tells me is that these decoys, this transcends tackle and becomes art. And clearly there's like a similar scene to say, like, you know, buying paintings where you have to know exactly what you mm -hmm. got, be well-versed in the history and all the different makers. Um, and, you know, the odds of me snagging one at the Columbus flea market for five bucks and flipping it for 5K, probably pretty slim, you know, plus... I, I take it you don't ever really know which ones were just made to be kind of kitschy art pieces and which were legitimately made for the ice use. And I'd suspect those are the ones that are the most valuable. So I thought that was cool, though. No, I think you hit this one really well with the folk art thing. And I think that I think for a very long time, like more than a generation, those decoys have been more folk art than practical use because Dark House Spearing has really fallen off since the Depression. It's just not. Has it? Not I mean, I, the, I know. Yeah. I, I thought. I thought a bunch of people still did it. I mean, I know it's still done. Certainly, there are people who still do it. But I think. I think those people, many of them, would agree that it's sort of a dying tradition for a number of reasons. Um, this was something we. If, if any of you watched the the Fur Hat Ice Tour, you saw a fair amount of spearing, and we covered it for exactly this reason. It's it's a really interesting kind of antiquated way of trying to procure fish through the ice. But you know, there is no catch and release. When yeah. you put a giant barbed trident through a fish, yeah, you're done. Yeah, um, a lot of the people who are doing it now, they still use decoys, but they're not using those spears anymore. They're using uh, animated archery lures. Equipment. They just send an animated lure just straight, down there, dude. Just animated lures and <laughs> that's crossbows. their market that's right all it there. Is. <laughs> but it it is we 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 met and interviewed a, a woman in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, Mary Lou Schneider, who was one of the most interesting people I've ever 
been lucky enough to spend some time with. She's a carver. Her art is beautiful. It's it very much is a cultural pastime in in northern parts of North America, and it's the the sort of thing that's passed on from generation to generation. I think it is going away. There are far fewer carvers than there used to be, which is why you're getting what you found in the story, right? That's why these are valuable. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, they have a, a historic significance now. So great story, man. That was, that was awesome. I, yeah. I, I think fish carving, like the, the decoy art is fascinating, partially because you can have the most elaborate decoy in the world down there. And, and the thing that the fish are going to come to is like a golf ball on a string. Yeah. They don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's, I, 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 I think I'd be more fascinated doing it to to play with different decoys and see like what actually gets those fish revved up and what doesn't. But, you know, again, tackle nerd, vintage tackle nerd, had to do it. Find it fascinating. Uh, Phil, you can go vintage tackle here. Um, what other ways can we go? Octopuses punching Octopuses fish in the pu- face. Punching octopus. <laughs> That's going to win. That's probably going to win. Done. Um, a lot of choices here for Phil to, to declare a, a, a first winner of the new year. And as soon as we are done hearing from Phil, we're going to kick it over to trivia and kind of dive into uh, art in, in fly tying, valuable flies created in central Pennsylvania and how that links to fast food. The octopus almost got me, but for schooling me about a world that I know nothing about, Joe, you're the winner this week. What we really need to do is get these octopuses thrown into the UFC. Octopus in the octagon. I mean, come on, the pay-per-view event practically writes itself. You gotta be highly skilled for these f***ing shows, you understand that? Yes, I do understand. Are you well-versed there? Are you very smart man? Yes, I am. All right. Playing trivia today, my longtime friend, the man behind Wild East Outfitters out here in eastern Pennsylvania, Nick Raftis. What's going on, man? Not much. How you doing? Good, good. Are you excited to play trivia today? Are you feeling mentally prepared for what's to come? Uh, maybe a little nervous, actually. <laughs> fair, fair enough. You've been that's just okay. scrolling through Wikipedia, yeah. you know, memorizing <laughs> just, random facts. Just, that's what just you hoping do. you hit on the right topic. Uh, so you and I have been fishing together a lot of years, and uh, one of the places that we have done that several times is uh, La Torte Spring Run mm-hmm. in central Pennsylvania. Miles, are you familiar with La Torte Spring Run? Not in a personal sense, but I know I know it. I've seen photos and read articles and seen videos of it, but I've never right. fished it. Right. It's you're better off for not being personally acquainted with it because it it is just it just makes me absolutely pull my hair out. It is a very famous limestone, rich yeah. in fly fishing history. Greats like Charlie Fox and Ernest Schweibert um, did a lot of great things there, but. Um, it just drives me to madness. It's like 10 feet across and choked full of weeds, and I've never caught anything out of there, even though it's supposed to be 25-inch <laughs> browns in there. I did watch Nick almost break his ankle there once, falling in a sinkhole. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought I thought you're really selling somewhere it. we've you're really yeah, selling I know. it. I know. It's great. Just oh, yeah. everybody ju- everybody jump on a plane. The actually the first time I ever got there, I was like, this is it. This is this piss trickle <laughs> is Latorte Spring Run. Uh, but anyway, since we have a common shared history there, we're going to go the Latorte route for question uh, number one. So, Nick, as I'm sure you are aware, uh, one of the famous people to fish Latorte, famous fly tire by the name of Ed Shank, mm-hmm. who just passed away last April. And he's um, developed quite a few fly patterns. So I'm going to test your knowledge of your home area here 
Pennsylvania, and ask you which of the following is not an Ed Shank pattern? Is it A, the Latort Hopper, B, the Shank White Minnow, C, the Latort Cricket, or D, the Shank Purple Crest Bug? Uh, one of those is not an Ed Shank pattern, and I, because I mean, isn't all you fish Ed Shank patterns? <laughs> I don't think I fish any of them. Um, holy cow, I'm gonna go with A. You're gonna say that the Latort Hopper is not a fly developed by Ed Shank? All right, I'll go with the purple crest bug. Smart man, because that's the correct <laughs> answer. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, really, holy really shit, the, out there. the Latort Hopper uh, is the most obvious one. Are you one. sure you want to do that? <laughs> I can't let you choke that badly <laughs> yeah. on our show. But yes, the Shank Purple Crest Bug is the one I made up, and all the rest are famous Shank patterns, and the common theme with all of them is that they are super sparse, because that's what you need on 10-foot streams that make me want to shoot myself when fishing them. It's no fun. Um, but but okay, I'm going to give you that one, even though I kind of nudged you in the right direction. All right. Um, so question number two, here we go. Uh, if if I were fishing at the mouth of the world-famous Latour Spring Run, right at its confluence with the Conor de Gwinnett, right? You, mm-hmm. You're familiar with this spot. We fished mm-hmm. it together several times. If I were suddenly struck by hunger, which of the following would be the shortest walk from that exact spot? A, Arby's, B, the Iron Skillet, C, McDonald's, or D, Corelli's Subs and Pizza? Hmm. Don't act like you don't know the answer to this question. I don't know that one. Oh, Arby's? come on. Arby's? Yes, correct. Arby's. Okay. Arby's is the, it's in all its scenic beauty and heritage history. If you were fishing the confluence and were hungry, you could walk to a freaking Arby's on the world famous Latorte Spring Run. I'm proud of you. That's kind of two for two. <laughs> that might be my favorite trivia question we've had yet. Oh, that man. was so wonderfully not fish related at all. Well, well, I I appreciate you playing today, Nick, and. Uh, I guess next time I see you and we fish, Arby's on me. All right, cool. Sounds good. Sound good? All right. Perfect. Awesome. So after hearing that, I'm sure most of you trout bums are thinking, the second I am vaccinated, I am so on a plane to Latorte Spring Run in central Pennsylvania. Go ahead. Mm. I dare you, because it requires full-on A-game fishing. And I'm totally a C student. C's get degrees on most other trout streams, and that's fine. But if you are headed out and you think you're going to show those legacy browns who's boss by skipping the size 48 crest bug on a 38-foot 8X leader, Miles has just the dry fly for that guy that wants to force feed him with a slap in the face. And you're about to learn all about it in this week's End of the Line. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. If I had to wager which dry fly caught the most fish this century, I'd stack my chips on the Chernobyl ant, or one of its variants. For those who don't know, the Chernobyl ant is a jiggly, buoyant mass of foam and rubber. The original version, which is a couple chunks of foam sandwiched around a long shank hooked with some legs hanging off, doesn't look like much from a topsider's perspective. But from beneath the surface tension, it looks a whole lot like any number of large segmented insects, a hopper, Stonefly, cicada, cricket, ant, whatever. 
but that profile is only part of the fly's appeal. While traditional dry flies are tied with feathers and fur, materials that absorb water and cease to remain, you know, dry, the use of closed cell foam was something of a revelation. If you're kind of new to fly fishing or under the age of 30, you probably take foam flies for granted. But even though just about every fly in the bin at your local shop uses foam now, it's actually pretty new, and its widespread use can be traced back to the Chernobyl. The details about exactly when and how this fly came along are hazy, which is not surprising, because those details are based on the oral histories of fishing guides standing around a fly shop parking lot and talking shit to each other over 30 years ago. The following history of the fly may not be 100% true, but it's probably close, I think. The Chernobyl ant wasn't the first fly to incorporate closed cell foam. Anyone else remember the, the crappy little foam spiders tackle shops used to sell in the 80s? I caught the hell out of bluegill on those things. Anyway, the Chernobyl first made foam popular. The specific iteration of closed cell foam used in fly design was originally invented by NASA in 1966, and by 1970, it had been developed into craft foam sheets. The first fly designer credited with using that foam is Larry Tullis. Rumor has it that Tullis started experimenting with foam flies in the late 70s, but it wasn't until 1984 that he shared his knowledge with a few guides on the Green River in Utah, but then it took a few more years after that to really catch on. Pioneering guide of that era, Mark Forslund, told the Salt Lake Tribune, Fishing on the green really slows down in August and September. I needed something to catch fish. So, Forslund made a two-inch long foam fly wrapped with black hackle, figuring, you know, something might eat it. On a summer afternoon in 1991, after a fishless morning, Forslund asked Dick Peterson, one of his regular clients, to try out his new idea. According to Forslund, I told Dick that I had this really silly-looking fly I wanted him to try. As soon as it hit the water, this big brown came from six feet away and just hammered it. That afternoon, Peterson landed 27 fish on the fly and christened it the Black Mamba. Word of the Mamba's deadly effectiveness got around, and a short time later, at least one, and possibly as many as four different tires, swapped out the hackle for rubber legs, giving the pattern even more profile and wiggle, and getting rid of every single natural material. Thus, the Chernobyl was born. Except it wasn't called the Chernobyl yet. One of the people who started tying the rubber-legged Mambas was guide Alan Woolley. After a day on the water, some of the guides were hanging around the parking lot drinking beer when Mark Benyon asked Woolley what the hell his clients were catching all those fish on. Woolley showed off the bug and said, it doesn't need a fancy name. It's just a damn ant. To which Benyon responded, yeah, but it's a f Chernobyl ant. Chernobyl was, of course, a reference to the worst nuclear power plant disaster in history that occurred in northern Ukraine in 1986. Fishing guides being suckers for dark humor, I could only imagine that laughter ensued, more beers were consumed, and the name officially stuck. Several other Green River guides have been credited with inventing the Chernobyl, including Denny Breer, Emmett Heath, and Rainy Riding. Maybe they all invented it independently. Maybe they borrowed from each other. I don't know. One thing I know for certain, however, this fly is a product of the Green River. Regardless of who actually invented it, the Chernobyl started making its way around the Mountain West, but its fame really took off when it was used to win the Jackson Hole One Fly, the most prestigious freshwater fishing competition in the world, in 1995. By the turn of the 21st century, the Chernobyl had become the most popular guide fly on every drift boat from New Mexico to Montana. And that's about the time that I was turned on to it, gifted a fistful in a bar parking lot by a buddy who poured drinks at night and rode clients during the day. I took that fistful rock scrambling through Yankee Jim Canyon on the Yellowstone River the following late summer morning. The water was low, 
and it seemed like every exposed boulder held a fat cutthroat that just couldn't help but rise. In that painful, slow-motion crawl unique to Cuddy's, whenever Chernobyl floated past, it was stupid, and I was an instant convert. A few years later, Tyra Will Dornan subbed out the underbody foam for dubbing and added two big polypropylene wings that stick up like double yarn indicators, creating the chubby Chernobyl. I was a full-time guide by then, and for a few seasons, we basically just fished chubbies in various sizes and colors from May through October. The chubby completely changed western trout fishing because it's both an effective dry fly and a viable strike indicator. A big one will float a large heavy nymph and be visible to all but the most nearsighted anglers. The chubby is no longer the automatic fish magnet it once was, at least on high traffic rivers. Once the fish started seeing a couple hundred chubbies a day, they wised up. Quick tip though, try darkening the underside of the wings with a brown or black marker for those pressured fish. But even if chubbies aren't the magic elixir they once were, I still carry several dozen in various sizes and colors, in addition to the classic Chernobyl ants. They still just work. And not only on trout, I've caught bass, sunfish, gold eye, and common carp, and I have friends who've used them on everything from golden dorado to channel cats. This is one of those bugs that you should always have in your box. Well, that is all the time we have this week. And uh, while we hope that you're out trying to catch your first fish of the year, just in case you're not, or perhaps you're incapable of doing so because you can't open your eyes, we gave you a book to read, uh, a fly to tie, and finally, finally, a reason to visit Nebraska. Oh, that's cold. Cold way to start the new year for us here. <laughs> hey, look, we're uh, we're really looking forward to hanging out with you guys in 2021, and we had a blast getting bent off the ground in 2020. And straight up, we, we couldn't keep it going without you. You know, you guys nope. are important to us. So please keep those bar nominations, awkward photos, salesman items, and uh, a million other things we want from you coming to bent at themediator.com. And don't forget, we love seeing those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags on Instagram. They are the fastest way to our hearts and the fastest way to get stickers in your mailbox. And a little hot tip for you kids out there. Don't forget to add just a little bit of water. <laughs> to your dad's bottle of wild turkey so he doesn't know how much you actually drank of it last night. Also, for your sanity, don't forget, it's only 79 days until the first official day of spring. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, Enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, 
They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 